Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Kathleen A. Foster, who is the Robert L. McNeil Curator of American Art and Director of the Center for American Art at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Kathy Foster is the curator of the exhibition American Watercolor in the Age of Homer and Sargent. It's on view at the Philadelphia Museum of Art until May 14th and is accompanied by a book of the same title authored by Kathy. The book and exhibition, it's safe to say, offer the definitive account of American watercolor between 1860 and 1925. The critical response has been overwhelmingly positive. A recent review in the Wall Street Journal calls the exhibition beautiful and filled with quiet splendors, and the book sumptuous. Kathy, thank you for joining me today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start by saying congratulations. This achievement is something you've been working toward for more than a decade, and it's really magnificent. Thank you very much. And I would say, actually, it goes back farther than that because it really begins from my graduate work at Yale. Oh, right. And that was on Aikens and some others. Yes, Aikens. I studied Aikens for my master's paper at Yale and then was involved in an exhibition of the work of Edwin Austin Abbey when I was just a graduate student. Yale has the great holdings of Abbey's work. He was one of the stars of the watercolor movement. And that's really the moment that I realized something was going on in New York in the 1870s and 80s about watercolor painting. Yeah. And in to, to go back a little bit, in discussions of watercolors, there are words one encounters repeatedly, like spontaneous and expressive and translucent, that can belie how challenging a medium it is. It's ironic that the boxes of watercolor paints that are handed to many little kids by way of an introduction to painting are actually quite difficult to work with. Um, could you talk a little bit about the medium itself and how some early and some enduring conceptions or misconceptions about it, in fact, provided a springboard for this incredible project? Well, you were so right. Watercolor is really very difficult harder than it seems, and yes, we all have a notion of uh, splashing around in third grade with watercolors, but I think anybody who's worked at it very seriously knows how hard it is, because you really have to plan ahead. You have to know where you're going. And I do think that modern people think that watercolors look like Sargent and Homer. That is, they are transparent, they're spontaneous, all those things that you mentioned at the beginning. Um, what's interesting about studying watercolor in the 19th century is how diverse it really was, how it, the panorama of different effects that people achieved in watercolor, of course, still true today, but nonetheless, the Victorian period was capable of making elaborate, enormous, finished watercolors that were rivaled the scale of paintings, were framed like paintings uh, in oil, and had this uh, blockbuster impact, and that that I think we're, in a, we're unprepared for that today, for the importance of watercolor, for the range of effect from very jewel-like, pristine finishes to broad and splashy. It was, uh, it was a real parade of different alternatives in watercolor. Which presented challenges, too, and continues to, in some ways, for, um, for showing them. It, it, the main challenge for showing them today is that they are light sensitive. You don't want to hang them in strong light because they'll fade. And what that means is that uh, owners are, are jealous of them, reluctant to lend them. 
and and stingy about lending them out so that it's actually it's hard to get together 170 watercolors all in the same exhibition uh, because people are, are reluctant to lend. And yet the fact that you've done this has allowed you to not only put together a beautiful exhibition but really tell a coherent and fascinating story arc, one that weaves art history together with economic and social history in a way that's expansive and eye-opening. And I know it's impossible to summarize the full scope of the history you've offered here, but um, I wonder if you could start by giving us some sense of the major shifts that were going on uh, in American watercolor in the years immediately following the end of the Civil War. Well, the trajectory here is from zero to 100, basically. In the 1860s, hardly anybody in the United States is very interested in watercolor, except for amateurs um, and children um, who painted watercolors by the thousands, and then commercial artists. The fine artists are really not interested in watercolor, so the great um, talents of the Hudson River School in the 1860s are, are just really, they're not only not interested, they're actively uninterested, disinterested in watercolor because of its associations with ladies and with amateurs and with commercial art. If you fast forward to the 1920s, everybody is doing watercolor. All of the most interesting, exciting talents in New York are painting watercolors, and it is now spread as an enthusiasm all across the country, and you've got watercolor societies in every city in America. So that's the story. That's the story of this book and of the exhibition. Is like what happened between the 1860s and the 1920s to fire people up about watercolor. It it doesn't really happen in any other country. Their watercolor was very well established in England. It was a kind of steady state. It was always popular. It was always seen as a national pastime. Um, but it didn't undergo this kind of tremendous surge that you saw in the United States. And certainly there was nothing comparable in France or in uh, the continental Europe for the kind of, of across-the-board participation in watercolor that you see in the United States in the 1870s and 80s. When, as, as uh, one of the newspaper accounts said, as the sportsmen say, everybody who is anybody is participating. And so the, the excitement is unusual, and it establishes this taste for watercolor by the turn of the century such that all the moderns take up watercolor, and by the 20th century, it's being hailed as the American medium. So it's a very special story that I think is unique to the United States, this, this tremendous um, surge of interest and enthusiasm. And as I think you touched upon, it has many different sources. They are visual, they have to do with the history of art, they're social, they're economic. Um, it's a perfect storm here that creates this interest in watercolor. Yeah, there's a great quote in your book. The American Watercolor School had condensed into a single decade, 1867 to 77, all the experiences of a century of British watercolor painting. Like their forebears across the Atlantic, Americans had grappled with the question of permanence, the problem of low prestige, and the dispute over unorthodox technique. It gives the impression sometimes of seeming like a um, kind of a raucous party, which in some ways maybe it was. Well, there was definitely an accelerated learning curve. The Americans caught this taste um, in 1866 um, when there was a special exhibition in New York that got everybody very uh, excited. 
a group of artists went and formed a new club, the American Watercolor Society was eventually the, the name they settled on, and began to beat the drum for their young club. And so it really did create a kind of boisterousness in the 1870s um, through the early 1880s as more and more artists started to join um, the bandwagon. Um, it was, uh, from reading the newspaper accounts at the time, the most exciting exhibition in New York with people standing outside the door waiting for it to open on opening day and people surging in in order to get the best pick of the watercolors. It was uh, quite a happening. And at that point, they were buying them as fine art, whereas prior to that, when watercolors were able to be sold, it was more as decoration or they were they were used in illustrations or in scientific books. Yeah, watercolor had this association with illustration from the very beginning, and it was a weakness at the beginning, like the affiliation with ladies and amateurs, because artists, the fine artists, disdained this. But it was turned to a strength because actually all those illustrators and all those lady amateurs, in fact, um, who knew how to use watercolors came surging out of the corners to display their work in the watercolor exhibition. So the talent that emerged from the illustration field and from the commercial art and design field was one of the forces that drove the watercolor movement. People like Winslow Homer, who's basically trained at Harper's Magazine, you know, he didn't, he didn't go to art school, he learned on the job, and there were really dozens of artists like him who used watercolor for bread and butter work, and they were extremely excited that this new club offered a haven for watercolor artists to be shown as fine artists, exactly as you said. This was not work done um, for the magazines and the newspapers. It was done for sale uh, in frames as artwork. And so that was a thrilling moment for artists who might not know how to paint in oils. Um, Homer certainly began as a watercolor painter. Abbey, Edwin Austin Abbey, whose work I first learned of at Yale, he only painted in watercolor and, and then worked in pen and ink for the first 25 years of his career and made a major international reputation on the basis of this kind of work on paper. Um, that was unheard of before the creation of the Watercolor Society because before that moment of the establishment of these annual exhibitions, a watercolorist, his work was sort of crushed in the corner of the big oil exhibitions of the period. They would send the watercolor and drawing um, and engraving bits into the corridor or the, into the shadows. Um, and they would be, number one, set aside, and number two, overshadowed by much larger pictures. If you think of the great paintings of the Hudson River School of the 1860s, they're often blended and, and large, Bierstadt Church, that kind of thing, with big gilt frames. And a little watercolor was just basically eaten alive by the company of these oil paintings. So having their very own space to show watercolors, um, where the watercolors could kind of cooperate with each other on a common scale um, was a much friendlier environment. And then the watercolor, the club, the society itself made the exhibition exciting and uh, stimulating environment. Uh, it was a fun place to visit and they succeeded tremendously with the marketing of this particular project. To the point at which um, at some at some moment they had more submissions than they could possibly handle. 
Yes, well, in the very beginning, in the first five years, say, they were like begging. They were going from door to door, you know, twisting arms and encouraging people to send in sketches and any anything. Um, but within 15 years, it had it had mushroomed or it had snowballed, whatever the right term is, um, to the degree that in 1882, the, the submissions so overwhelmed the jury. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of submissions, and even though the show was large, they couldn't accommodate all of the people who were rejected. Then a, there was a scandal at the time because it was recognized that the hanging committee had sort of willfully tossed out some of the things that the jury had accepted. And so when people figured out that their work had been accepted but then had been weeded out by this second committee, they became um, very ornery. And they were also annoyed because some of the members of the society were showing, you know, 8, 10, 12 objects when lesser artists had not not even been accepted at all. So they stormed off and created a second exhibition, which the press immediately dubbed a Salon des Refusés in the pattern of the great French, Salon des Refusés of 1863. So it created a, a cause célèbre and a certain scandal at the Watercolor Society that was great for the newspapers. Oh, my God, they... they <laughs> rehearsed every bit of the of the to and fro in the watercolor society meetings it, it became headline news and that in itself is interesting that the creation of this rival show would have stirred up so much interest absolutely and one of the things that i find um particularly tantalizing about the establishment of watercolor as um an american medium during these years and the particular years that we're talking about is its uh, relationship to the Civil War and um, how, you know, coming out of years during which there was a question about whether the American experiment was in fact going to make it, um, there must have been some renewed interest in beauty and interest in country and trying to figure out what beauty was going forward and what the country was going forward. And in, in the decade prior to the establishment of the American Watercolor Society and this um, interest and focus on watercolor, John Ruskin published, the, the British writer and artist, published a couple of books about um, watercolor and painting outdoors and um, to the extent that American artists may have been looking for new ways to to picture America and to embrace America, that that really fell right in line with um, with getting out with a set of watercolor paints and putting it down on paper. I think that's really a lovely idea, and I think you're completely right. Everybody was very weary, really demoralized, and and um, and broken by the Civil War, and so relieved for the end of the war and so, so looking forward to turning a new page. The, the creation of this club in 1866 comes, you know, at that moment when I think the whole art community in New York is looking for something new and for a fresh start and for something that is unifying rather than dividing. And, and then, yes, I think you're right, too, something that gives them a chance to celebrate uh, the country. And surely watercolor was from the 18th century, uh, an outdoor medium. It was the explorer's notebook. It was the, you know, scientist's um, sketchbook. And so the tradition of taking watercolor outdoors into the landscape was already venerable. And, and it's interesting in that light, of course, that it took the Americans so long to catch on, to get really interested in that. But suddenly 
in 1866, it's sort of what they needed. Now, I think that's the, the point you've hit on, that it, it was the right medium for this moment. And so two things are happening here. One is just an excitement about novelty and a fresh start. Um, and then there is this traditional affiliation to landscape. And that ties into the other great merit of watercolor painting, which is that you can take it outdoors. And it is, as Ruskin said, perfect to capture fleeting effects of atmosphere because it can be done very swiftly and with very simple means. It's not as complicated. I'm just, of course, assuming you're good at it. <laughs> it's not as complicated as oil painting, and you can get that effect of sunset you know, with a few quick strokes. Well, at this very moment, we have rising up in France and elsewhere um, a taste for the sketch that the watercolor perfectly answers. Um, the, the painters in France are working outdoors now from the motif more, um, and the idea of bringing home something that is like a captive uh, experience of being in the moment um, is charming to the artist and also to collectors. And so collectors are suddenly, it's not that they're wearying of these complicated and elaborate paintings, they still have their place. But what's rising up is a taste for these informal, personal, more subjective, maybe more spontaneous and expressive, little notes, sketches for their own sake. And the Watercolor Society from year one is willing to show sketches. The National Academy of Design, which is the august um, um, gathering of professional artists who are elected to their ranks, they are not showing sketches. They show big finished figure paintings, history paintings, and enormous landscapes. Um, the Watercolor Society, however, it shows these finished, more finished, elaborate watercolors, but it also is willing to show these sketchbook pieces. And Winslow Homer, like from the very first year that he exhibits, which is in 1874, he just sends in what he describes as note, uh, pages from a sketchbook, leaves from a sketchbook. We don't even know what the titles, what the subjects were. We can, we can guess from the things that survive that they were some of these wonderful views of children on the beach, of kids in boats um, in the harbor in Gloucester. And they were received with this wonderful mixed response. Half of the crit critics, or maybe three, three quarters of them, were confused by how unfinished they were and said, well, they're great as far as he takes them, but like, why doesn't he spend a little more time finishing these? They were a little puzzled by these works. But a certain percentage of viewers, the critics, other artists, and collectors just loved the spontaneity of them. That, m that moment of artistic creation, that little insight into the creative process. And watercolor, when it's treated calligraphically like that, um, can give you a sense of the handwriting of the artist, of the presence of being there, just looking over their shoulder while they're sketching those boys in the boats. And so Homer seized on this very early. He was ahead of the curve because this taste, which would later in the 70s be identified as Impressionism, was still very new in the United States. But Homer is testing the envelope right here in 1874, and he's doing it at the Watercolor Society, which is the place where people can send in this kind of experimental work. So one of the delightful things about kind of imagining a visit to the watercolor exhibitions in 1875 or in 1880 is that there would have been this tremendous diversity
diversity of work. Enormous, complicated figure subjects, storytelling things, sentimental and, and antiquarian sometimes, landscape views of all kinds, and then some of these really wild sketches, semi-abstract, um, uh, especially work that was being sent by an artist named Frank Courier, who was working in Munich. The, the extraordinary diversity of effect made the Watercolor Society the most adventuresome forum in the, in the United States because there was no other place where you had basically the old guard painting in the Victorian um, finish set against these wild new painters who were working in the most expressionistic, and they called it impressionism at this time, the most impressionistic style literally hanging side by side in the same room. There was no other forum in New York that had that kind of shocking um, opposition. But in the friendliest environment, uh, there was no us and them going on. The critics took it all in. Um, it was just this, as you said, something of a circus. It was a little bit chaotic, um, but it must have been delightful. You talk about the uh, 1870s phenomenon of American Impressionism, which um, isn't the same thing as, you know, Monet and things that were going on in France. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, the, uh, the New York Times in 1879 announced that the Impressionists are here from Rome and Munich. That's, that's where the Impressionists came from. Nobody had heard of Monet and Renoir and Pizarro and so forth um, in New York in 1879. They identified Impressionism as something that was coming from a circle of the painters in Rome around the Spanish artist Mariano Fortuny, who was just a, a, a flaming virtuoso. I mean, he was a fabulous um, bravura watercolor painter, um, like famous for bright color and a, and a lot of splashy effects. And then the second center, so that's, the, that's watercolor impressionism coming from Rome, coming from these Spanish-Italian painters, and from Germany, from Munich. That was Frank Courier with these dark, stormy uh, sunset scenes that seemed to have been painted in like 15 minutes. I mean, he was just throwing paint at the at the paper, and so they are rapidly painted, very athletic um, and expressionistic. Um, they are they are the arrival of the modern world um, into New York. These pictures because they are really art for art's sake. That is, they are painted for the joy of painting. They are painted for the formal effects for the expression of and the expression of emotion response to nature. Um, they're not about storytelling. As Whistler said, you know, a painting's not supposed to be about narratives and ethics and morals and so forth. It's supposed to be about art. It's supposed to be about beauty. And so this Whistler is known, but somewhat distantly. Um, the people who bring this to New York are actually these watercolor artists from, from Rome and Munich. And that's what Yorkers called Impressionism, really until the middle of the 1880s. Um, we had a wonderful big exhibition by the Duran Roel Gallery in New York in 1886 that firmly introduced Monet, Noir, and the French, the Parisian Impressionists um, to the Americans. And so it was another um, half a decade here before this other kind of Impressionism dawned on the Americans. So the first wave coming coming from another corner. And what it did for Winslow Homer was it made those early 
Eastside sketches that he had shown at the Watercolor Society in 1874 and 75, it only made sense of them. Because when they were first shown, the critics all scratched their heads and said, what is Homer doing? Why won't he finish them? All right, fast forward to 1879, Courier's wild landscapes are now on the walls, and now Homer is classified as an Impressionist, and everybody goes, oh, I get it, he's an Impressionist. And so then you get these hilarious articles with the critics gathering in who they think the American Impressionists are, Lafarge, etc., people who, of course, had nothing to do with Monet and Renoir and the French independence, but on the basis of their taste for a broader, more suggestive handling, they're all gathered into this new school called Impressionism, and then everybody's happy, and, and it sort of is accepted because they have a label for it. Labels can be important, I suppose. And the you know, that movement and, and, and also some of the specifics of what watercolor allowed the artists to do generated a pretty awesome uh, synergy between what was going on in American art and the arrival of modernist aesthetics a little bit later. You know, the whole story of the watercolor movement, this arc that I've described from the 1860s to the 1920s, it, it, it's a rainbow that... Um, covers the moment when Americans become modern. And so this war of styles that you see in the watercolor exhibition between the more old-fashioned and finished um, detailed work and the splashier, broader American Impressionists um, is a moment when the avant-garde arrives in New York and you see a separation in the art world between the what described as the new men coming from Europe with these fresh ideas and the old guard, the sort of holding the line for realism, naturalism of the older sort. So this, this is happening in the arena of the watercolor exhibition. It's not the only place in New York where this w- was happening. The Society of American Artists, were the, they were the club created by these new, younger artists with their wilder ideas about subjectivity and expression. But that club, was, or that exhibition area, was really exclusively for those modernists, those proto-modernists. Um, and the National Academy of Design was sort of for the old guys. The Watercolor Society was the arena where they all met in the middle. And so it makes it um, fascinating because you can see the critics responding to the, the, literally the cacophony that is happening in the galleries of the Watercolor Society as modernism takes root. One of the points that I made earlier about the taste for signature, the love of the artistic process, and then in Courier's work, the sense of art being done for its own, the joy of it, for the athletic thrill of chasing the sunset, you know, to try to capture that. Um, These are modern sentiments, um, and the draining of subject matter from the work, and the emphasis on technique, all of these things are being showcased in watercolor. So these are, these are the moments that American art is becoming modern as it gets used to this new kind of art. But the other thing that's happening that's very modern at this time is the modernization of the art world itself, the creation of the gallery system, uh, the difficulties of artists trying to market their work in this capitalist world. These are, these are struggles that we see in the Western world as the art has to deal with creating a product that you sell to a 
the old ways of patronage are falling away. The Watercolor Society becomes just a case study in the creation of a bourgeois market for art because watercolors were less expensive than oil paintings and they were less intimidating. They were easier to buy because people probably had a watercolor at home already. It wasn't as threatening and scary a commitment as buying an oil painting and it may well have cost a quarter of what an oil painting would cost. So what the watercolor exhibitions did was welcome in a whole new, I think, uh, less affluent crowd of collectors. Now, it, we're still talking about upper middle class people, um, but nonetheless, it's not the tycoons, it was not the Vanderbilts and so forth who were buying American art at this time. They were all shopping in Paris and, and buying paintings from the salon for $10,000. American artists were thrilled to sell a $150 watercolor to a doctor or a lawyer, a merchant, and so it was a new market, very modest one, but it was a ray of light at a time when American artists were struggling to literally find a living. So that story of the economies of the period is one aspect that makes the Watercolor Society an interesting arena to study. The other thing that's happening here is the professionalization of the market that goes on, that is the creation of societies in which you become a little elected member that gives you a certain amount of status. And so the proliferation of societies all follows the pattern of the watercolor society. It was the first of these special medium clubs to be organized in New York that really caught on. And at the beginning, they held under their umbrella the etchers, the, the charcoal draftsmen, the illustrators, and, and they all sent their work into the Watercolor Society. So it became a kind of omnibus exhibition of work on paper. But in the late 70s and 80s, as the Watercolor Society gets more crowded and we get this competition for places, we see the, the art world breaking up into these smaller, newer exhibition venues and clubs, uh, a pastel society, an etching club, an illustrator's club, that was called the Salmagundi Club, um, a charcoal club. And so one by one, Watercolor Society begins to spin off these small groups and who go off and create their own miniature version of the Watercolor Society, employing some of the same strategies and techniques to promote their work um, that the Watercolor Society had really pioneered in the late 60s and 70s. So it's what, what we're watching is the kind of expansion and then, in a way, the atomization of the New York art world in the, in the wake of the formation of the Watercolor Society. It, it's an interesting moment because in the 70s, I think New York is small enough that everybody can fit in the tent. And so that makes the Watercolor Society so exciting by 1880, but it also creates tremendous growth stress. And so you have these dueling societies by 1882 and a creation of a whole new club in 1890 and all of these other clubs on other focused on other media um, in the 1880s. That moment when New York gets too big to fit under one tent is also a moment of modernization and specialization of creating professional ranks for artists and ways for artists to market their work. It's just the, the grandstand here that we're sit, sitting in, that we're looking at the watercolor movement, it just becomes a 
wonderful way to, to look in on how things are changing for American artists in this era. And one of the other implications of the inclusiveness of the Watercolor, watercolor Society in the 70s um, that represents perhaps both a challenge and an exciting opportunity is that is that you have the ability to include more women artists than had perhaps been possible prior to the formation of the Watercolor Society. Well, I mentioned, you, you're completely right, and I mentioned the illustrators as being one of the major armies of talent that are tied to the watercolor movement because these people know how to do watercolor professionally, um, like, like Winslow Homer, like Abby. They do this for the magazines, but the other army of talent is from women, because women have all been doing watercolors as girls in finishing school or at school. They've been making watercolors in albums for their friends or for to decorate the parlor. And what the Watercolor Society does for all these ladies is encourage them to actually send their work out for exhibition. And the very first exhibition in 1867 was 30% women which is just shocking because like, there must have been like 7 or 8% women in the National Academy of Design. I mean, dismal by comparison. So number one, Watercolor Society is like fine with women sending their work in and very encouraging to lady amateurs. Well, many of those amateur ladies, and I, having looked at all these catalogs, I have to tell you there's just dozens of them and you've never heard of them before and, and they fade away and, and you, we don't even know who these people were. But... Every now and then, you have a brave soul who moves out of that arena into professional life. And in the 70s, there is a, in all of the editorials in the magazines, the problem of the woman, of the woman looking for um, an income, of the genteel widow, of the unmarried spinster who was looking for an occupation, a way to earn a living. And what are we to do with these women? And so at this moment, we create um, new schools, schools of design for women that are training them to be illustrators and training them to be painters, and especially in watercolor, but also designers of, of, of wallpaper and textiles and so forth. And those women often are sending their work into the Watercolor Society in an effort to become professional artists. So some of them, like Fidelia Bridges, um, Ellen Robbins, they actually become well-established. Fidelia Bridges is actually elected to the membership of the Watercolor Society. It's a pathway to professional stature as an artist using watercolor. And so what was once a weakness that is seen as just a ladies' medium, it now becomes actually a tool that women can use to find their way in the world, earn a living, sell work, you know, either in an exhibition or work to a publisher for um, um, decorative design. Fidelia Bridges became a staff artist to Louis Prang, who was one of the great impresarios of color printing in the 19th century, an innovator of chromatography. And he hired artists, um, one, at, you know, one by one, for piecework, and also had staff artists like Bridges, who generated the first Christmas cards. This is the moment Christmas card is invented, and the birthday card, and the Valentine card, and artists like Bridges used watercolors to create designs for the lithography that was made into these greeting cards, or calendars, and 
candy box decorations and all the kinds of chromolithography of the Victorian era. Those were watercolors, most of them, and many of those artists were women. So the watercolor movement was gigantic for women in giving them an opportunity to exhibit their work, just for starters, get their work out there in front of the critics and in front of patrons. But it also was a way for them to earn their living as commercial artists in illustration and all of this kind of publishing around the, the explosion of, of chromolithography in the 1860s and 70s. It was the um, way that women professionalized and I and in the arts and the, the kind of triumph of this is seen in the works women like Fidelia Bridges, but also at the turn of the century with artists better known today, like Jessie Wilcox Smith, um, who was a famous children's book illustrator. She was, uh, by now, trained as a watercolorist in art school. In the 1890s, you suddenly see watercolors starting to be taught in art schools that had never been a curriculum before. Jessie um, learned at Drexel in Philadelphia and at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and went on to a career in illustration that was almost entirely based on her skill as a watercolor painter. So all of those wonderful drawings to Robert Louis Stevenson poetry and um, other children's books that have now become classics, um, they made her into one of the wealthiest women artists in the country. She bought a big house. Um, she was paid uh, you know, for the covers of the Ladies' Home Journal, et cetera. It was... Um, a major success. She became literally a household name. And and on the strength of the watercolor movement, basically, that was allowing women to enter into these fields and giving them this kind of skill that they could use professionally. Is it your sense that, that this had a direct effect on women's ability, women artists' ability, to sign their full names to their art rather than, for example, a first initial and a last name, which would have disguised the fact that the, that an artist was a woman? Yeah, it's very very poignant. Many of the artists in the first catalogs are just, in, it'll, they're just submitting their work with their initials. And people like that, sometimes it's like um, first initials and last name. Sometimes it's just three initials. Um, Winslow Homer's mother was a watercolor painter, and she actually led her husband, hus she led her uh, son in being the first to submit her watercolors for exhibition. But the first year she exhibited, she just exhibited with only her initials, not even her last name. And so I am I'm putting it out there that I think it was Henrietta Homer, but I'm saying that it was she was using only initials in this, um, in this exhibition. Eventually, she started using her last name. But many artists continued until the 1890s. Um, Claude Hurst, Claude Hurst is a great still life painter in both oil and watercolor, and her actual name was Claudine. But she used, she signed her work Claude because she didn't want to be judged by uh, clients. She didn't want pain patrons seeing her work on the wall and sniffing at it because they thought it was by a woman. So that prejudice uh, held, I think, until the turn of the century. Jessie Wilcox Smith, no. She wrote her entire name, Jessie Wilcox Smith, on every, every painting. And I think that was a kind of coming out moment here. Not only was she proud to use her full name, but it was published, you know, in a on the cover of the Ladies Home Journal, um, with her name in full. So that that kind of celebrity, now she's she's got her name out there and it's literally become a brand. 
And the, the, the shows and the society were originally um, f- focused on New York. As the smaller individual watercolor societies spread across the country, what interesting things happened with, with regional examples of watercolor? Well, the flourishing of these watercolor societies is first on the East Coast, in Boston, Philadelphia, and then soon in Washington and Providence and up and down the East Coast. What is interesting about those regional clubs is they are often driven by women, and 50% women, and that is a demonstration of how women are suddenly stepping out. They are, of course, finding it easier to get a foothold in their own town first. Um, Some of them, some of the greater regional painters, like Alice Shilley or Jane Peterson, who are both from the Midwest, Peterson from outside Chicago, and Alice Shilley from Columbus, Ohio, they both go to New York. Um, Having, you know, been trained in the Midwest, they realize that they sort of have to go and get some, establish themselves in New York, and then both of them actually go to Paris um, Peterson studies in Venice and in London, and they, so they become extremely sophisticated, working literally in the circle of, of um, Picasso and Brock in Paris. And then they come back to the United States and work this, what is fundamentally a circuit of watercolor exhibitions by the early 20th century. So Shelley and Peterson are showing their work at the Philadelphia Watercolor Society and the Boston Watercolor Society, and they're showing their work in Chicago and in Columbus and so forth. There there becomes a kind of round robin of these exhibitions in which the artists can send their work around the country. That's true in painting as well. There were many, many of these painting exhibitions that began to spread out across the, uh, the states in the early 20th century, the East East Coast artists sending their work really around to many, many exhibitions. And the watercolorists were doing the same thing, creating a package show that would travel to six exhibitions in Cleveland and in Indianapolis and in in Minneapolis and San Francisco. So the the, uh, professionalizing of these package tours, the efflorescence of these um, watercolor societies in every city in the country, and I mean, they're still out there right now today, and watercolor is tremendously popular today, and many, many cities and small towns have their own watercolor society. Um, This is uh, a product, really, of the 1890s and the turn of the century. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the watercolor societies of today, you know, your book ends in the 19... 20s, but um, that's hardly the end of the story. Well, what, what happens, you know, the crescendo really is around the time of, of the death of Homer in 1910 and the rise of Sargent, um, which happens just at the same moment. Uh, Sargent has been painting in Europe. He was raised in Europe from parents who were born in Philadelphia. And famous now at the turn of the century as a society portrait artist who's been doing watercolors all along, but not showing them. Sargent suddenly decides to send his watercolors out to exhibition in 1904, and then in 1905 he has an enormous blowout exhibition in London that reveals to the world what a fantastic watercolor painter he is. Very soon, there are solo shows of his work in New York that sell out completely. The Brooklyn Museum buys out the entire show in 1909. 
and then the Boston Museum gets in on the act and starts buying up the next two shows, and then the Metropolitan Museum gets on the line and starts begging Sargent to set things aside for them. So mm-hmm. all the Amer- American museums start start competing to acquire Sargent's work in this period from about 1905 or 1909 to Sargent's death in 1925. He is tremendously celebrated as a watercolor artist, and, and people are, are thrilled by his work. This coincides with the late great work of Homer, whose last watercolor is in 1905, but after his death in 1910, there's a big retrospective at the Met with a hundred of his watercolors. There are memorial tributes in Philadelphia and in other cities remembering his watercolors. So both Homer and Sargent have this moment of celebrity when people are just relishing their watercolors and, and enjoying them that coincides with the arrival of what might be called the next wave of modernism in New York. Because 1910 is exactly when um, you know, Weber and all of the other artists who've been studying in Paris come back with cubism on their minds. And people return from seeing the Cezanne retrospectives in Paris with, with Cezanne and this new kind of painting. Um, what's interesting is that the New Yorkers take up watercolor. It doesn't happen in Paris. Um, Cezanne made great watercolors, but he kept them to them himself. He didn't really show them. And, they weren't seen often until after his death. Um, but New Yorkers all made watercolor into a language for modernism um, in a way that you don't see happening in Paris. So that that taste that Homer and Sargent have created, that sense that watercolor is, a, is fun, that it's wonderful, that collectors love it, that you know it's an experimental medium, has been established by this time. So that the younger artists coming along, and I'm thinking Charles Demas and John Marin, George O'Keefe, they all pick up watercolor as just like a natural thing. It's like a completely normal thing to do. It seems a reasonable thing. They've all been seeing watercolor since they were children. George O'Keefe, again, was raised by lady artists who taught her watercolor painting. Um, That that, um, familiarity now, it's like in the drinking water, that everybody's just, of course you will do watercolors. And so what you see in New York in the period between Homer's death in 1910 and Sargent's death in 1915 is an amazing explosion of different kinds of watercolor painting in every style. Cubism, you know, synchromism, we even have Man Ray and kind of doing Cubist things. It is, it is uh, everybody's you know, favorite medium, and that, that uh, diversity, that sense of comfort and familiarity with watercolor, I think, is the product of those that earlier generation that had made watercolor into a household object for Americans. Well, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to look at all of these works in all of their range and diversity together and for, um, you know, giving us this window into an exciting period of time in American history and art history. And thank you for joining me today. Yes, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. The book again is American Watercolor in the Age of Homer and Sargent by Kathleen A. Foster. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.